Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I am the youth director here at Sardis Fellowship Baptist Church. Today, Pastor Rod Heppel continues in our series in the book of John, exploring chapter 14. Thanks for listening, and enjoy. And then we came into the second half of John, uh, the last 10 chapters from chapter 12 through 21, and we're looking at a new theme that... uh, for the moment of glory is what we've titled it because Jesus refers to it that way. He talks about in the last 10 chapters which focus on the last week of his life, he talks about this is my moment of glory. For this moment I have come that the Son of Man might be glorified. And so we've gone with that theme for the second half as we kind of build up to Easter which is April the 9th this year so it's coming soon, right? And we want to be looking at the last week of Christ's life, the teaching that he has and, uh, and we started into it last week, and I'm going to carry on today in John chapter 14, verse 1 to 6. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there. If you have it on your phone, you can also turn there, and we're going to be looking at about six or seven verses. This is what it says. Do not let your hearts be troubled. This is Jesus speaking. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house has many rooms. Pardon me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would have I told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Where else, at the point of death, where you, would you like to be than other than where Jesus is? Okay? Because I believe what he's saying to us here, until the return of Christ where he comes back and takes us back, when we die, he comes for us, that we might be where he is. These words of Jesus were spoken to his first disciples, but they apply to us. Uh, They were spoken in the upper room. Maybe you've heard that terminology before. It's the night before his crucifixion and he's meeting with the disciples. Uh, It's called the upper room discourse because they met upstairs in some room large enough to hold the disciples. And there they had probably the Passover meal the day before his crucifixion. And uh, during that meal is when he washed the disciples' feet. During that meal is when Judas had left the group to go and betray Christ. And Jesus then you know, tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times. So all of that has taken place in chapter 13 on this very same night that he now speaks these words about where he's going and what he's planning to do for his disciples. He's leaving. He's leaving. And so he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. But their hearts were troubled. I mean, he was saying things like, my little children or my children, which is really endearing language, okay? I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I've told the Jews, so I now tell you where I'm going, you cannot come. And that's what troubled them. That's why he starts off by saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. But they were troubled. Um, This stirred up fear in them. They they were confused. Well, what does this mean? I mean, what is this about Peter denying you? I mean, we we count on Peter. He's kind of our leader next to you, Jesus. And if you're not here, and if Peter's going to leave you or disown you, what about us? Are we? So they're confused. There's fear. Where are you going, Lord? Why, do you, why are you going? Here's the full passage. I want you to get the whole context here. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would have I told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know the Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Do not let your hearts be troubled. 
you believe in God, believe also in me. He is calling on them to have the same level of confidence in the understanding that they have grown up with all their entire lives of knowing who Yahweh, the God of Israel, was. And now Jesus is saying, as you believe in Yahweh, trust me. It's like he's saying to them, trust me, everything's going to work out in the end. I'm going to take care of everything. And once I have, I'll come back and take you to be with me and with the Father. And it's like he knows it's not making sense to them in the moment, but don't worry, trust me, believe me, it will make sense later. Okay, Lord, where are you going? I mean, Thomas, he just asked the same question that any of us would have asked if we were there and we were one of those disciples. I mean, Lord, where are you going? How, how are, you say we know the way, but we don't even know where you're going. If we don't know where you're going, we don't know the way. It doesn't work like that, Lord. Fill us in. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Well, what does that place look like? Isn't that, pardon me, where is that place? Isn't that the question that, that they're asking? We'll get to what does that place look like. Where is that place? Where is it? It's a good question. Jesus is resurrected right now, and he's somewhere. Where is Jesus in his resurrected body? Okay? Now, at this point, it's prior to the cross, prior to the resurrection, but where is it that this place exists? If we go to the Old Testament and you read through, you realize that they refer to heaven or the heavens. It's a plural word they have in the Hebrew language, and it refers to three kind of different levels. Um, The sky above, so the atmosphere. The stellar heavens, where higher up, the highest heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxy. And then they also use it in a way to describe the dwelling place of God. The dwelling place of God, which they know it's not in the sky. The sky is a metaphor for up, beyond, greater than us. As the highest heavens are higher than us and greater than us, so God exists in the highest heavens. Where is that place? The Bible refers to it in different ways, different language. It is called heaven. It's called paradise. It's called Abraham's bosom. Uh, It's the third heaven. It's referred to as the region above. Life and glory refer to heaven. So there's lots of different ways in which it's referred to. And Jesus says, I am going to a place. And he is going to that place, not the sky, not the stellar heavens, to heaven, to a realm beyond, to the place where God dwells, to the only place where God can fully dwell because this world cannot contain the glory of the Lord. There's lots of verses in the Old Testament that speak to both how they understood the heavens and also speaks to the fact that there's a limitedness to this physical heavens, the sky, that cannot contain the glory of God. So here's a few verses. The psalmist says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. So that's kind of like the stellar heavens, right? He's, he's considering all of that. Um, referring to it as heaven or the heavens. Second Chronicles, when the temple that Solomon was going to build for God, he says, But who is able to build a temple for, for him since the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him? God's glory is so great. How is it possible that he's going to reside within a temple that I build? But there's an aspect of the glory of God that came to reside in that place. The idea is that the physical realm, the heavens that we see, cannot contain all of the glory of who God is. There is another place. There is another realm. And in that place is where God dwells. And in that place is where Jesus was going. 
Psalm 113 says, The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high? And so you can see that there's this understanding in Old Testament that there's the heavens, but there's also God who dwells above the heavens. He's greater than all of it. In Greek thought, they had these same three kinds of levels. They had the understanding of the atmosphere, they had the understanding of the stellar heavens, and they had an understanding of what they called the third heaven. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul, referencing himself, talks about an experience that he had um, in a vision. And he says, I know a man in Christ, and he's referring to himself, he is the man, he's just referring to it in third party. I know a man who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. So Paul has an understanding of this place where God dwells. It's called the third heaven. Up. The word up, if you were to go through every single kind of reference to how heaven is referenced, it often talks about up. Not just up into the sky, not just up into the stellar skies, but up and beyond. And so you will see this language is up. Paul says it right there. I was caught up to paradise. And the Apostle John also having um, a vision. He said, after this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And so you have this idea of come up here again. And of course we wonder, well, where is that place? And the answer is not satisfactory. We are not going to get a satisfactory answer here today that I can tell you exactly where it is because we just don't know. But Jesus says that heaven is a real place. That's where he was going. And he was going there for us. He was going there that one day we might come and dwell with him as he dwells with the Father. Heaven is a real place. So that's the first point that I want you to understand. But then we do wonder, well, what is it going to look like? What does heaven look like? And we get some language here about my father's house has many rooms. Uh, Maybe your version says it a little differently. Um, Some of the older translations, it uses the term mansions. And that's fine. Um, But the emphasis isn't on necessarily that, hey, I get my own luxurious palace. It's on the fact that there's many rooms. In my father's house are many rooms. And so the emphasis there is on the fact that there's room for everyone who believes in Jesus. There's room for you. And that's the emphasis in this passage about what John is saying to them, is there's room for you, or what Jesus is saying to his disciples, and John is recording it. I talked with uh, Dr. Joel Krekko this week. I always like to run some of my ideas past him. And he was bringing to my attention that the Father's house can also be understood as temple. And it's true. If you look through the New Testament in particular, you will understand that it's often referenced to um, the house of prayer, my Father's house, right? Um, and, and that it has this idea of worship, right? And if you look, at even in the passage that we just read about Paul saying he was caught up to the third heaven, and, or John, sorry, it was John. And John says, I saw a throne and someone seated on the throne. If you go to Revelation, there's lots of language around that. 
So that's a really cool thought. It's one I haven't explored enough yet. So if you like that thought and you want to explore it more, talk to Joel Correco. He'd be happy to chat with you. I'm going to stick with Carson's um, language here. Uh, D.A. Carson is uh, a, a theologian that we often use for reading his commentaries. And I feel very safe when, I'm, when I side with D.A. Carson. I kind of feel like that's a safe place to be. You don't want to side with me, but if I side with a good guy like that, then you can as well. He says, listen, the language is straightforward and it's very unique. Um, the language of house, it means house. It means dwelling place. It means that God dwells. And it's the same word that is used a little bit later on in the same chapter. Uh, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. So that idea of home is this idea of dwelling. It's this idea of being together, right? Wherever that place is, where God dwells in the fullness of his glory, where the angels serve him, where Jesus was going to, where the saints who have died abide in him, we too one day will go to that place and dwell with God. It's a beautiful picture. It's one I'm hoping is resonating with your heart because I think we need to grasp this and go, yes, there is a home for me in heaven. So heaven, what does it look like? What will it be like? You know, many people like to think about whether it's going to be a city or whether it's going to be a country, like the countryside. Because if you look in scripture, you see various metaphors being used to describe heaven. Is it a garden? It talks about rivers, it talks about a tree of life, it talks about a garden setting, it talks about a it describes this beautiful, glorious city. So let's take a vote here. How many of you are looking for the urban setting? I want heaven to be a beautiful city. Not many. How many of you are looking for heaven as a countryside? I want a new earth. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Well, good luck. You are both. Uh, I didn't mean good luck in a sarcastic way. You are in luck. That's what I want to say. <clears throat> I think heaven is both of it. If you read... Uh, Revelation in particular, you're going to see about this new heaven and a new earth and a new city, or the city of Jerusalem, the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heavens. And what does it do? It comes down to earth. Wow, what is all of this? Well, I think for one thing, we need to realize that any kind of experience that we have here on earth, there's a correlation to what goes on in heaven. So I don't think that we should think of it just as sometimes, you know, that we're floating around, little spirit beings on a cloud playing a harp. None of that. And I know you don't believe that but I think that it kind of somehow resonates in the back of our mind that heaven isn't really concrete. It's a little bit obscure, right? This is what Revelation 21 says. Uh, Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side the river stood, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, Oh, yes, this is awesome. Yielding its fruit every month. I'm a farmer. I want crops of fruit every month. Thank you, Bill, for that amen. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will, be, will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So there's this kind of picture that John's drawing for us of this incredible place, and I, I don't think that we think about heaven enough. I think we need to kind of ponder it. What will heaven be like? I think we kind of need to let ourselves go a little bit on this front and kind of engage in our thoughts about what might be there that is better than here, because it is better than here. 
I think we spend most of our time kind of thinking about our earthly home, and we don't spend much of our time thinking about our eternal home. We're very busy trying to make our experience here on earth as much like heaven as we could possibly think it would be. But we can't. I mean, we so badly want things to be right here on earth, and we so badly with all of our effort try to create that environment in our personal lives, in our homes, in our towns where we live, in our world. We're trying, and yet is the reality not that it isn't, right? I can't make heaven on earth. Why is it that we desire to live here on earth for so long? We all want to drink from the fountain of youth, and yet we get older, and as we get older, there's less and less that holds, on to this, uh, holds us onto this world. I, I hear that a lot from people. I've done pastoral care over the years, and as they're getting older, they talk about the fact that there's less here on earth. They don't care so much about building their kingdom on earth. They're looking forward to heaven. Their bodies are wearing out, and their mind is more about what it's going to be like there. Their friends or family who have died and gone on them, there's more there than here, and they can't wait to go be with family there. And I think that's a completely... Um, accurate statement, we will be in heaven together, but we're obviously there to worship our Lord, but we get the pleasure of being together with those whom we love. No problem with that thinking in my understanding. But we don't think much about heaven because we're really caught up in the here and now. We think that this is the real show when it's really just a rehearsal. That's the real show. We will be there forever, not here, there. That's why Jesus says, store up your treasures in heaven where your treasures are, your heart will be. Store up what matters most. Paul talks about the fact that we're citizens of heaven. What? That's our real home. Well, what about here? Yeah, you live here, but live with the perspective of heaven in mind. Live with an understanding that there's values that reflect God's glory that he wants us to live out while we're here. So see this world through the lens of eternity. The Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art, where? Who in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the values he wants us to have. Your will there that we want to live out here. Yeah, I did want to show you that one. This is Paul's understanding of citizenship in heaven. He says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things because we're citizens of heaven. Our thoughts on heaven should guide us in how we live here, um, because heaven's better, <laughs> better in every way. <laughs> do we really believe heaven's better than here? It is. Or do we think somehow that this is the only shot I have at what's called life, and I better suck as much out of this world as I can get? Folks, don't buy it. That's the lie. Heaven is to come. Over the years, I've had a thought that I've developed kind of goes like this. Um, it seems like earth is a lot like heaven when these things happen. When we have enough money to live and do what we want to do. When we have good health and we can do the things we like to do. When we have good relationships with our family and friends and when we live in a time and a place of peace. You know, you put those things together and it's kind of like, I don't know, I'm really not longing for heaven. Why? Well, I'm doing pretty good here. Now, it's not a true statement because we still have a problem with sin and that hasn't been taken care of. But I think, if you just want to follow my little illustration here, a lot of people who have those things, they're not thinking about what comes next. They're thinking about how to live this out as best as possible. On the flip side of everything going well, think about what it's like if none of those things are going well. Even if one of them gets touched, your health, not enough finances. You live in a place like Ukraine where war is going on. All of a sudden you're realizing this isn't it, right? 
You're thinking this is it as long as everything is good. But once something isn't good, you start thinking about the reality that this is not it. This can't be it. And if every one of those areas is gone, people make references like this is hell on earth. What are they meaning when they make a statement like that? They're saying something is seriously wrong and this can't be it. It can't be any worse than this, but yes, it can. But the point is, something's wrong. And I think that this is a good thing for us to understand because that's what Jesus is saying, I'm going to take care of. I want to make right. There will be a recreating and a remaking. And one day, he will make everything that's wrong right. Revelation 21, 3 and 4 says, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. You know, that's what we want. That's what we want here on earth, and it's a description of what's going to come. It's the description of the new heaven and the new earth and the new reality in the presence of God. That's why heaven is so much better than what this world has, because this world is always going to have the things that are broken, and God says, I'm remaking it. We need to spend more time pondering heaven and getting excited about it and anticipating the fact that we're going to take a journey one day. We're going there. I mean, we get excited when we go to places like Hawaii, and we're going to go to Hanuma Bay. Plan for it. I mean, it's a day trip, and you got to make sure you have a car to get you there, and you got to make sure you have food for when you're at the beach, and you got to make sure you have sunblock, and you got to make sure you have snorkel and mask if you want to go under the water to the coral reef and see all those beautiful fish. And we get excited about it because we want the experience to be great. And what I'm saying is, you get excited about heaven. You plan for heaven, and you plan for heaven now by saying yes to Jesus and living your life for Him. Get ready for something that's far greater than just going to Hanuma Bay, although I wouldn't mind going there again. <laughs> Why don't we think more about heaven? I, I, I think we don't think more about heaven is because we think it is this boring place. We think it's, well, I don't know, it's obscure. It's not tangible. It's somewhere out there in this kind of thinking. In fact, we often think of it as that lifelong worship service. And you're like, oh man, that doesn't excite me too much, the lifelong worship service thing. It's, it'll be better there than here, okay, folks? But that's not what it is. I don't think that's an accurate portrayal. It's not going to be boring at all. And I think that everything we do in heaven is worship. Because when your relationship is right with God, in fact, quite honestly, everything you do on earth is not the worship service. It's all of your life and all that you do. And when we get to heaven, every single breath we take is worship to God. And there is something here that correlates to there that I think should get us excited. So let me ask you, what excites you here on earth? Are you a person who loves friendships? You love to travel? You love gardening, sports, cooking, the arts? Yeah, the arts, hobbies, fishing, ATVing, water skiing, snowing, bungee jumping, skydiving, and car racing for Kevin Fraser. <laughs> what will heaven be like? Will we be having fun there? Well, Rod, you, this, this is silliness. Really? Well, what makes you think that nothing of this will be in heaven? I can tell you this. I know for a fact, based on the Word of God, that what will happen in heaven will be exceedingly better than what happens on earth. So if we happen to think that there's experiences we have here on earth that are pretty good, they're going to be better there. And here's one of mine. Disneyland. California Adventure Park. There is a ride there that used to be called the Hollywood Tower of Terror. They have now changed the name to not scare children to Guardians of the Galaxy. You get on this big 
couch type seat inside a building that goes up 200 feet and they reverse launch you to the top. <laughs> Let me tell you, I can't take this ride without laughing my head off the whole time. And you get to the top and the windows fly open and you can look over the entire venture park and then the windows slam shut and you're in the dark and it drops. And it does this six times. And you look like those people. In fact, I think I'm in the back row in that greenish shirt. That, um... Why do I tell you this? I tell you this for this reason. If there's something here in this world that we think is, man, that's really amazing, God has something way more amazing for us. And it's not just the thrill of a ride. That's not even my point. My point is, if we find something interesting here, why would we not think there's something of interest there? If we find something here that is fun and enjoyable, why would we not think that there's going to be things that are fun and enjoyable there? If we love exploring and discovery, why would we not think that God has us exploring and discovering his goodness and his amazing power for all of eternity? Do not let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. This place will be the place that for the first time we know what true peace and contentment and wholeness is like. Free of the longings and desires of our heart in this world that can never be satisfied. We get glimpses of what peace and contentment is here, but we're incomplete. Free of sin, free of pain, free of suffering that comes in this world. It's a place where our relationships with God are perfect, is perfect. Which means our relationships with each other are perfect. That's a huge taste of heaven. It will be a place where finally we don't have a divided heart. We will have an undivided heart for God. We will be, he will our soul desire and the desire of our, of our soul will be met in him. That's heaven. That's what God has in store for us. That's what Jesus has gone to prepare for me and you. So my question today is, who wants to go to heaven? But you need a ticket. How do you get to heaven, right? How do you get to heaven? It's one thing to want to go there, but you need to know how to get there. And Jesus makes it very clear in this passage. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Thomas says, no, we don't know where you're going. We don't know how to get there. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Thomas, you know me. If you know me, you know the Father. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We can understand that. Jesus is the one who's saying, what I'm about to do tomorrow on the cross is to prepare the way for you to come and follow because I am doing what needs to be taken care of in order for all of humanity who believes in me to come and be with the Father forever to dwell with us. Jesus is the way to heaven. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The way is in Jesus. I want to close with something that Dr. Daryl Johnson brought out from his course that I took in John's Gospel. It relates to this passage, and he says that the imagery of this passage parallels a first century Jewish betrothal ceremony. So you have D.A. Carson saying, it's a house, it's a dwelling. You have Joel Carreco saying, you got a temple. Now I have D.A. Carson saying, you got a wedding. Um, there's a lot of different imageries that are used, right, in order to help us understand. And uh, J uh, Dr. Dale Johnson is bringing something here out about a betrothal ceremony. Now you need to understand that betrothal is more than engagement. Uh, you can break off an engagement in North America and you don't have to issue a, tif a certificate of divorce. But in that time, in first century Jewish custom, you had to issue a certificate of divorce. So it's a covenant. And so I want to share with you some of the language around this covenant. Here's how it works. The groom leaves his father's house and he comes to the bride's house and he settles on a purchase price with the father of the bride. 
The marriage covenant is now in effect. The bride is now bought at the price that was set. I'm sorry, ladies, that's not now. That was then. Okay, you get a ring, done. The covenant is sealed by the drinking of a cup of wine. Everything Jesus did on this night with his disciples. And while you drink the wine, you speak the betrothal covenant vows, which go like this. I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And when I have prepared that place for you, I will come again and take you that you may be where I am. The groom then leaves and for a longish period of time, maybe upwards of a year, prepares the house or the room where they will live. And the woman prepares for the wedding. At the end of that time frame, when the, when the room or the place is ready, the groom arrives at her house. It's preceded with this great celebration of the best man and the groomsmen all shouting out saying, the bridegroom has come, come out, come out to meet him. Then the wedding begins and the groom takes his bride to be his wife and they live together forever. Jesus is the groom. We are the bride. He's made the long journey from his father's house to come to us. He's paid the purchase price to make us his bride. He's prepared a place in his father's house for us. One day he will come and take us to be with himself and live with him forever. Amen? It's a beautiful picture. And it's a picture that is reinforced throughout scripture. Do you have your room reserved? Your room is reserved by putting your faith in Jesus. You believe in the Father, believe in me. I am the way to the Father. There is only one Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came into the world to die on the cross, which we're about to celebrate here in the Lord's table, was resurrected to life that he might give us eternal life in a place called heaven. I'd like to pray, and then I'm going to invite Tim and, um, and the worship team to come. Um, we're going to be reflecting before the Lord's table here, a time of reflection as a song is being sung for us. And, uh, and you can prepare your heart and then we'll come back to this table and I'll lead us in our, our time of having the communion together. So let, let's pray together now. Father, in these next few moments as we prepare our hearts to reflect on what the cost was to Jesus in order for that place to be prepared, I would pray that with hearts of great gratitude we would reflect on that. And that we would just give you thanks. Thank you for an opportunity to pause and reflect. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship sermon podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.